With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. So you want your charity to succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern day fundraising success. And practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect place to learn from experts around the world who, along with our host, provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books cover a broad range of topics from major gift fundraising to use of social media and how to succeed online. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you maneuver through this economic downturn in the charitable sector to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Remember, this is a live call-in show. Become part of the show by adding your voice. Call now at 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Just click on radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And welcome here to the latest edition of The Nonprofit Coach. Uh, today is November 20th, and I'm coming to you live uh, from the Charities Aid Foundation of America National Headquarters outside of Washington, D.C., uh, we've got a great show for you today. As uh, the announcer mentioned, this is a live call-in show. Uh, you can join us at 347-324-3080. You can also join us over in the chat room. I see some folks over in the chat room. You can ask questions there or email me at tedhart at tedhart.com. Uh, those of you who are familiar with the show uh, know that we always start the show off with page one news. Over here on page one news, you can find all of our radio links uh, for today and all of the archives at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. You can get advanced notice of the radio links by following us on Twitter. And my uh, tag there is at Ted Hart. First up here on page one news comes to us from HubSpot. This is a free ebook that you can download on how to attract customers with. Twitter. The biggest mistake marketers make with Twitter is not realizing its full potential. Uh, and in this book, what you will learn is how you can integrate uh, Twitter into uh, your activities to generate leads and uh, opportunities for donations. This comes to us with a foreword uh, by Laura Fitton, who is the author of Twitter for Dummies, and explains how to use social networking to drive real business results. Now, this is written for uh, the for-profit sector, uh, but you will find in this book 
a lot of information that will be helpful for nonprofit organizations, such as optimizing your Twitter presence for brand awareness, uh, jump-starting your Twitter with lead generation strategy, um, and also, very importantly, measuring the ROI of Twitter. Uh, next up here on Page One News, we want to draw your attention to tomorrow. Uh, tomorrow is a big holiday, and it is the International Day of Giving. The International Day of Giving is held annually on the day before Thanksgiving as a means of promoting international giving to charities based around the world. This is a terrific day uh, to give thanks around the world. You can find all the information in the radio links today at tedhart.com or go directly to internationaldayofgiving.org and go ahead and uh, post your ideas on how someone might celebrate the International Day of Giving. This year, that's November 21st, 2012. Do your part to help charities around the world. Next up here on the Nonprofit Coach, always good uh, to uh, have the opportunity to chat with our good friends over at CECP, the Committee Encouraging Corporate Philanthropy. Today here on page one, we've got Margaret Cody. And Margaret, I'm so happy to have you here with us because you're here to talk to us about the 2012 edition of Giving in Numbers, Trends in Corporate Giving. Welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach, Margaret Cody. Thanks so much, Ted. Great to be here. Hey, Margaret, great to have uh, you folks back here. CECP has been a longstanding friend of the Nonprofit Coach, bringing us some of the very best research and insight into corporate giving. This is, of course, your bailiwick. This is what you do. So tell us, what's in the numbers? We were really excited to see this year as we dove into the survey responses from the over 200 companies that responded that corporate giving looks like it's stabilized since the downturn. Uh, it had been going up pretty steadily, uh, 2006, 2007, 2008 even. Uh, 2009 it dipped, and then 2010 we began to see a comeback, but the results were a little bit polarized. 2011 that comeback became even stronger. So very encouraging us for us to see that the overall climate of uncertainty um, hasn't prevented companies from restoring their giving to past levels. And, and tell us what those levels are and what's got you so encouraged. Sure. Well, the typical company that we work with in our sample, median giving is just over $20 million a year. Now, that includes um, cash from their foundations, any product donations that they make, uh, pro bono service, as well as any cash giving from their headquarters. And in these uh, in these numbers that, uh, that that you're finding now, first of all, um, we ha are providing a link uh, to your website today in the radio links at tedhart.com, so folks can uh, find this, and they are able to uh, download uh, the full report. Is that correct? Yes, we're very pleased to make this a free download to anyone who's interested. So encourage people to visit the site and get a copy. Well, how exciting to be able to get the uh, the full report. Uh, from such an esteemed group as CECP. Now, the median total giving um, in the sample was $21 million. That, that's quite a lot of giving. How does that stack up uh, from one year to the next? It, it's been hovering at about that point, um, kind of consistently in, in years where the economic cycle seems pretty strong. Um, again, there was a dip in that number a little bit in 2009, but uh, the typical company was able to get, get back up um, over $20 million in uh, 2010, and they did it again in 2011. 
Uh, oh, for perfect. A lot of well, com- uh, as you just heard, uh, tomorrow is the International Day of Giving. Uh, can you give us in, a little bit of insight into what's happening with corporate giving in the international sector? Sure. I think there's greater and greater interest for um, companies who have a presence in many countries throughout the world or who have customers in countries throughout the world to reflect their values in those geographies. And we see companies really looking for ways to bring programs um, to those parts of the world to fill out their philanthropy portfolio. And when we see companies do that, it's almost always, if not always, additive. In other words, when they decide to take philanthropy abroad, it increases their giving. It's over and above anything that they had done domestically. So it's not a trade-off of giving abroad versus giving at home. It's it's giving more. That said, uh, companies need to be thoughtful and sensitive to the local context. A program that works in one part of the world might not be able to be picked up and put somewhere else. And so you need to really listen to your consumers and listen to your employees uh, um, and understand the community need and how philanthropy works in, in different parts of the world. But there's strong interest from companies doing that. And lots of Lots of examples of companies successfully putting pro bono projects abroad or matching gift programs abroad or volunteer recognition, really neat initiatives that are going global. Well, that's that's very exciting, and I, and I sort of feel like you made a little bit of news there in your insight uh, into the fact that international giving is, tends to be additive uh, to your numbers. I think that's uh, the first time I've actually uh, heard that statistic. That's very exciting. Of course, the base of giving is still uh, domestic, and I made – um, uh, note of the fact that the largest percentage in your your tracking of the companies um, is 85% of the companies had a formal domestic employee volunteer program, uh, and 47% had an international volunteer program. So, what's the role of volunteering in the overall giving in numbers? This is a trend that we've been watching excitedly over the last couple of years, which is the importance of employees um, as a stakeholder group for the company's philanthropy. When we pull CEOs together at our annual Board of Boards conference, sometimes we do some polling and we ask them what constituency most influences your thinking around your company's charity. And we only allow them to pick one choice. And when we put them in that situation, often it's employees who rise to the top that Really, they want to make sure that the company is allowing their employees to to live their values every day by by coming to work and working for an organization that they feel good about. And employee service is certainly one component of that. Uh, it's, It's quite common for companies to organize volunteer activities either for individuals to do on their own or for teams to do to recognize a certain number of hours of community service with a cash grant to that nonprofit really looking at um, all options from whether you want to do pro bono or whether you want to do micro-volunteering, you know, 15 minutes of cleaning up a spreadsheet for a nonprofit on your lunch break. Uh, lots of different options for employees to get involved, and companies are really excited about that interest among their employee base to give back. The last thing I wanted to uh, uh, make sure that we covered today is in, during the economic downturn, it seemed that uh, there was a, a bit of a trend of companies um, either canceling or slowing down matching gift programs, you're showing that 83% of companies offered at least one matching gift program. That's really quite exciting. Are we seeing those uh, matching gift programs coming back strong? We've been actually getting a lot of requests for our members to do some custom benchmarking for them on matching gift programs and think that a lot of companies are really looking about how to make those programs as strong as possible. 
some of the trends that we saw through the downturn, we have to be honest with ourselves and say the downturn was also a period of uh, workforce contraction for a number of firms. So sometimes when there was a decline in matching gifts, it might also be a reflection of the fact that there um, was some, some downsizing of companies that affected those programs, but the employees uh, who were there often saw the needs in their communities and wanted to give even more than they had in the past. So there was some some forces kind of pushing and pulling on that matching gift figure. But um, uh, companies really love the ability to be able to let employees make a choice about which nonprofit partners they feel strongly about and to be able to match the employee donation with the uh, company's donation. Um, you might have noticed also sometimes in, in instances like Sandy and other natural disasters, uh, companies also provide an opportunity even to match what customers are doing. So um, the, the, the letting stakeholders make a determination about the causes that are important to them and backing that up with corporate dollars is a strong trend. Well, so well, that's that's exciting. Then you're not you you didn't see a retreat in the programs, but maybe just a, a slip in the dollars because of the number of people that could participate. That's nice to see that that support is still there. Now, um, before I let you go, um, uh, Margaret, this is your eighth annual report on trends uh, in corporate giving. Um, how have you seen over that eight years? Um, what has been one of the biggest changes that you've seen? There are a lot of forces at work here that I think are really positive and exciting in terms of the thoughtfulness and the visibility that corporate philanthropy has among the public, that it has among the nonprofit community and government, and even within the firm. You know, this is a conversation that's happening at the CEO level. There uh, are really talented staff being put in charge of the corporate foundation and the corporate giving program. They're interacting more and more with the sustainability officers and uh, really working to be transparent with their communities about what the company is up to, to start a two-way dialogue with their stakeholders about the future of the company and how philanthropy can play a part. And that level of uh, focus up and down the uh, org chart, I think, is really positive for corporate philanthropy. The um, nature of the corporate nonprofit relationships is becoming um, very kind of intertwined where you have companies and nonprofits uh, co-designing programs, which I think hasn't always been true in, to the degree that we're seeing it now. So it's becoming strategic. It's becoming ever more thoughtful. The partnerships are becoming more intertwined. Um, and all of this, I think, is leading towards bigger impact. You know, we track very closely in giving in numbers the way the dollars are changing and um, seeing companies back up those dollars with a lot of uh, great thought and resources to try to achieve greater impact with their partners, I think, is, is really encouraging for communities. Well, this is such an important report uh, documenting $19.9 billion in cash and product giving. Uh, I hope that you folks will come back and share uh, next year's report. The folks at CECP are always welcome here on the Nonprofit Coach. Uh, today, Margaret Cody, thank you for being our guest and bringing us Giving in Numbers, the 2012 edition. Really appreciate your time, Ted. Thanks for sharing the report with your listeners. You bet, you bet. And, of course, you can uh, find the direct link over in the radio links today at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. As we uh, wrap up uh, page one news here, next I want to just draw your attention uh, to another, it seems like the Twitter day today, how to dominate Twitter for customer service. Uh, this is a download book that you can get at Salesforce Desk. Uh, and uh, you'll find that link over in the radio links today. And this will not only go over Twitter basics, 
but it will also help you understand uh, the best practices for retweets, best practices for hashtags, uh, and uh, using Twitter to engage uh, your customers. You can find a free copy of that over in the radio links today at tedhart.com. I want to also draw your attention uh, to Kay Sprinkle Grace. Uh, Kay Sprinkle Grace is a longtime friend here on The Nonprofit Coach. Uh, she is uh, our perennial holiday favorite, uh, so she will be here on The uh, Nonprofit Coach on December 18th. Today over in the radio links, you will find um, a podcast of last year's holiday show, December 20th. Kay Sprinkle Grace was here on The Nonprofit Coach, always a favorite, and don't miss an opportunity to catch up on that show before you catch Kay live here uh, next month here on The Nonprofit Coach. Uh, with that, uh, that wraps up uh, page one news. That means it's time for page two. <laughs> I'm very pleased to welcome to the show today Dr. Bob Penna. Uh, he has a Ph.D. in political science from Boston University uh, with a specialization in urban and municipal affairs. He's the author of the Nonprofit Outcomes Toolbox, awarded the 2012 Association of Fundraising Professionals Skystone Partners Research Prize and the lead author of Outcome Frameworks. His present work uh, centers on the application of outcomes to nonprofits, capacity assessment, nonprofit communications and reporting, and the application of certain corporate sector outcome-based tools and insights to the work of nonprofits. I can't think of anything more important for us to be looking at here at year-end, learning how to assess outcomes. We have one of our nation's experts on that topic here. Welcome here to Nonprofit Coach, Bob Penna. Thank you very much for having me. Pleasure to be here. Bob, it's great to have you here uh, on the show. Of course, we've got lots and lots of questions uh, for you, but I want to start off focusing on uh, the Nonprofit Outcomes Toolbox. I mean, wow, it's got to be really pretty cool to be the winner of the Skystone Partners Research Prize. What's that feel like? Um, it, it was quite an honor. The, uh, the interesting part was that uh, when I, uh, how I found out about it, uh, that, was, uh, that was a story unto itself. Um, I got an email that uh, went to my spam folder, and uh, it said congratulations. And I thought at first it was, uh, you know, I'd won the Nigerian lotto again or something. And uh, <laughs> I just happened to open it, and there it was. And, 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 and I didn't think it was real because I didn't know I'd even been nominated. And uh, so I went back to my publisher, and she was all excited because she'd gotten the same notice. But, of course, she knew what it was, and so she opened it. So uh, it was it was quite an honor. Uh, they, I was I was very very tickled to get it, and they were very very gracious in uh, in their announcement and what they said about the book. And uh, it's uh, it's 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 been a boon to, uh, to 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 my being able to help promote the book. Well, and those of us who uh, are familiar with the Association of Fundraising Professionals knows what a big deal winning that award is, and it it, it does not go to anyone who. Uh, is not top of their game, but can you g give uh, my uh, listeners today who may not be familiar uh, with the Skystone Partners Research Prize, what is that? Who who earns that? Who wins that? Well, that prize goes back a ways. Um, it's at least, if I recall, it's around 20 years old, and uh, if you uh, were to go to the, uh, the association's website, they have an actual page that shows you past listeners, uh, well, rather past winners, 
and uh, people like Paul Brest have won that award. Paul Brest is now the past president, uh, just stepped down recently of the uh, William and Flora Hewlett Foundation. There are just just a, a stunning array of names, and it, it, it is really uh, uh, humbling to find yourself uh, in, in, in that company. Uh, it, uh, it's quite an award. Yeah, it really is quite an award, and it's an honor to have you here on this show having won that award, and it's based on uh, your book, The Nonprofit Outcomes Toolbox. So set this up for me. The, the, the concept of outcomes in the work of nonprofits is here to stay. That's, that's a statement that you've made. This is something that, that is hugely important to all organizations. Can you define it for us and help us understand what it is that we're going to be able to talk to you about today? Well, to begin with, you have to appreciate the difference in, of, of what the outcomes movement has become in the nonprofit space as opposed to what went before. Uh, many people don't realize quite how old the nonprofit space is in the United States, but it, it's easily 140 years old. And when nonprofits, what we now call nonprofits, first began, they generally were, in those days, they were called charities, uh, a term the Charity Navigator obviously still uses. Most of them tended to be uh, church based or um, surround, centered around a certain cause. Uh, for example, uh, uh, trying to get rid of slavery, abolition, uh, got a lot of these uh, organizations uh, their first start. Uh, if any, any of your listeners saw the movie uh, uh, Gangs of New York, uh, situations and circumstances like that where you just had incredible, incredible poverty in certain areas, uh, citizens would get together and see you know, what could we do to help, uh, to help uh, alleviate conditions in these areas. But when the, the sector first began, no one ever really asked what was being accomplished. It was more a focus on what I call a problem mentality. I, I would presume that 99% of your listeners have seen um, uh, a film version somewhere along the line of Dickens' Christmas Carol. And there's that famous scene early on where those two gentlemen come into Scrooge and they ask him for a contribution to charity. It's the scene where they say, you know, what shall we put you down for? He says, nothing. They say, ah, you wish to remain anonymous. And he says, no, I wish to be left alone. Well, if you go back to that, they don't tell him about what they're doing. They tell him about the problem, that there are the poor, and the, 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 uh, uh, the needy, the deserving. This was a focus that stayed in the nonprofit space throughout. It, it still exists. Every time you turn on the TV screen and you see an ad from a nonprofit that is showing you pictures of some terrible situation, that is a focus on a problem. They're not necessarily telling you what they're doing, and they're certainly not telling you the success they're having in addressing those, uh, those, those, those situations. The second thing that came along was a focus on activity. Nonprofits started telling everybody how busy they were, how many clients they, 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 they had, how many people passed through their training programs, for example. But again, <clears throat> while they were focusing on activity, and many of them still focusing on the problem, they were not focusing on outcomes or results. The new take, if you will, this, this outcomes movement that really began in uh, various different places, sort of like spontaneous combustion, because none of these people necessarily were in contact with one another, but somewhere around the very late 80s, early 90s, in three, four, five different places, people started saying, well, what are we getting for all this effort? What are we getting for all this caring? What are we getting for all the money that we're spending? 
and a revolutionary book was uh, was published by uh, the Rensselaerville Institute called Outcome Funding, and it basically posed the question, well, to state governments uh, specifically, instead of fo- uh, funding promises, why don't you fund results? Why don't you fund performance? This was one of the contributory factors, but that has become the shift. More and more nonprofits are being asked, show us evidence that you're actually having some sort of beneficial imp- impact on the situation that you're trying to address. Now, there is one, one gentleman, an expert in the, in the field, a gentleman by the name of David Hunter, who wrote an article a year and a half ago, rather uh, inflammatory article, but according to David, if you really look at the hard evidence, there's very little to say that very many nonprofits have ever done any good at all. That's not to say they haven't, but, but the point is that the evidence that they can show, this, the, the things that they can actually demonstrate, uh, is uh, very few and far in between. Why? Because nobody ever asked, so therefore they were never answering that question. Now the question is being asked, and that is what the outcomes movement is all about. It is a focus on what are you actually accomplishing. Don't tell us how many people you serve. Don't tell us what your intentions are. Don't tell us how big the problem is. Tell us what you're accomplishing. And in in, uh, focusing on the accomplishments, what you've actually done, one of the things that we talk a lot about on here is that needing money isn't enough. You know, sort of get in line. Everybody needs money. Uh, What differentiates uh, you is being able to say what you do with that money. Um, Is that getting close to outcomes? Well, it's not what you do with the money if you tell people about programs you're running. In other words, it is what you are accomplishing with that money. It's not what you do with the money. Do What you do with the money is another activity account. We run these programs. We serve this many people. It's interesting, Ted. You know, if, I'm sure with all of the nonprofits you, you talk to and you meet people who are in the nonprofit space, very often I'm sure you'll say, well, you know, tell me about your organization. And invariably they start with a verb. We serve or we provide. Those are activity accounts. What you want to hear is lives they're changing, situations they're changing, circumstances they're changing. What you want to see is evidence that they are having an impact. That's what the outcomes movement is about. And the reason, and it's interesting, your previous guest was talking about corporate giving, and giving obviously and fundraising reps into this. I've been asked about this book. Well, why this book? Why now? Why should you know? Why should anybody care? And and the reason is very simple. As you said at the top of this section. Uh, this this segment, uh, page two. Outcomes are here to stay. Those organizations that learn how to do this stuff and actually incorporate it into their everyday mindset that this is the way we operate, they are ultimately going to be the ones that are more successful when it comes to raising funds. I mean, we can talk about this more because there's a very wide disparity in the space as to who gets money that your listeners should be aware of. But I am telling you that what is happening is more and more and more, uh, I don't like to call them funders, I like to use the term investors, but whether it's governmental or whether it's philanthropic or whether it's individual, more and more investors are asking for some evidence of performance. Show me what difference you've made. Well, isn't that uh, an important point that you just made, is you just referred to them as investors, is mm -hmm. Is in 2012 there a difference between donors and investors and nonprofits? Well, think of it this way. A donor is giving something. The problem with that terminology is it doesn't necessarily imply that anything is 
owed back. Um, the reason I don't like the word funders and the reason I don't like the word donors is because, again, it sounds like a gift. It's not unlike you know when Aunt, May, Aunt Maisie gives you a sweater for Christmas. Well, once she gives you that sweater, she has no say, oh, unless she wants to nag you, over whether you wear it, when you wear it, how often you wear it, the things to which you wear it. There is no implied quid pro quo that you owe her something back, and even if it's just an accounting. That, to me, is part of the problem with that language. The term investor, as everybody understands it from Wall Street, is that an investor is due a return, a return on that investment. My mantra to nonprofits is that we have to start emulating, adopting that language. We have to stop talking about our funders. We have to stop talking about our donors because that so, almost so implies that it's a gift. So what is the return on investment in the nonprofit sector? Obviously, we're not talking about people getting a, a profit off from their gift. So how, how, what is that return? The return is some measurable change in the situation or the circumstance that the nonprofit is working towards. People do not give for no reason. They give. They, there's a lot of reasons why they give, and they're not all they're not all the most well thought out reasons. But the truth is that whether they're responding on an emotional basis or whether they've, whether they've done their due diligence, they give to certain nonprofits because they want to see a change in the circumstance or the situation that that nonprofit addresses. What is owed, the return on the investment, is to be able to show them that you have made a difference, that you have made a positive difference in that situation or in those circumstances. And in make, making making that, is, is that often enough, or are we talking about stepping it up in terms of tangibles? Uh, I don't, I'm not quite sure what you mean about tangibles. Well, in, in, in terms of, you had mentioned earlier, reporting and... Uh, things of that sort. Are there standards that are being um, uh, created that, particularly thinking of our earlier guest today on page one, uh, corporate donors, um, corporate investors, if you will, um, what they're looking for in terms of that return? What they're looking for is, and in the early sections of the book, I talk about what is what are the characteristics of a good outcome. Now, Sometimes we get in a little trouble with this term because people think that I'm uh, uh, comparing a, quote, good out outcome against a bad outcome, something that went sideways or went wrong. That's not what I mean. What I'm saying is some outcomes are, are, are more useful, if you will, than others. A good outcome has certain kinds of characteristics. Number one, it is meaningful. It is not a cosmetic change. Number two, it is sustainable, that the, that the change will, uh, will endure beyond the direct intervention. Um, there are there are numerous characteristics that it's bound in number that it's bound in time, but the tangible is that you're bringing about a a, a meaningful, sustainable, verifiable change. Now, there's a woman by the name of uh, Lucy Knight who uh, came up with this uh, little uh, acronym B A C K S, the Bax measures she called it, and I refer to this at great length and quite frequently in the book. The BACS measures, B stands for behavior, A stands for attitude, C stands for condition, K stands for knowledge, or S stands for status. And I don't mean status like in the pecking order in a high school or something. Status in terms of maybe being endangered as opposed to being safe, something of this nature. It, it, Lucy Knight's theory was this. 
what people are investing in when they are investing in a nonprofit is to see change. Change in what? Well, change, she says, along one of those uh, 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 ranges that are reflected by or measured by these BACS measures. That what you want to see is a change in the behavior, attitude, condition, knowledge, or status of those you exist to serve. That's the tangible change that nonprofits are being asked to be able to uh, to document. And, and in documenting that um, uh, the the outcomes, how sophisticated do nonprofits need to be um, to be able to approach this? I mean, are we are we talking about outcomes um, measurements um, for small soup kitchens and large universities, or is this exclusive to one uh, segment of our nonprofit community? No, actually, it goes across, and I'm very glad you asked that question because many nonprofits think that this outcomes business is merely about counting and reporting. And they do themselves a disservice. Uh, in some cases, they may go get a software package that will help them uh, track things. And some of these programs are incredibly powerful, incredibly useful, and incredibly well designed. But the problem is if all we're doing is using them to count and count characteristics of clients, that's missing the boat. The and what what um, uh, what are some of those packages that 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 you might? Uh, you're not saying that they're the be all and end all, and they're 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 not they're they're not the solution in and of themselves. But doesn't there have to be some capacity to measure? That there does has to be a there does has to be a capacity to measure, and there does has to be a capacity to track. But it all begins it all begins with having a well defined outcome statement. And that is an issue that I tend to run into in my practice where they have the software and as again, some of these are incredibly well designed and very, very good packages. But there's an old uh, an old axiom in the computer world, you know, garbage in, garbage out. If you're just counting stuff, then at the end of the day, at the end of the year, what you have is a collection of counted stuff. The point of the matter is you have to begin with what I call a well-defined outcome statement. And a well-defined outcome statement tells not only your investors, but your stakeholders and your staff, here is what we are going to accomplish in this space this year. So, for example, let us take a, 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 a classic example of a, of a job training program. In the old days, you would get a, a, a description that would say, we're going to train uh, X number of people. You know, we're going we're gonna to train for, you, you pick the job. And what they counted was the number of fannies that they actually had in the seats, the number of certificates they gave out. But they never looked past it to see whether or not, for example, those people ever got jobs. Did they actually keep the jobs? So in that case, a well-defined outcome statement would say something along the lines of, this program will serve, uh, will, will train rather, X number of people within, let's say, a, a defined community, such that six months after being placed, a certain percentage of them or a certain hard number will still have those jobs. Now, what you've said in that is obviously that you're going to train them. You've said that you're going to place them. But the key, the change, is that they are going to actually be keeping these jobs. A certain number of them are going to be keeping these jobs six months later, still have those jobs. That is a well-defined outcome statement as opposed to just we're going to provide training. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, th I think it does, and it, and it gives a bit of uh, context. 
uh, we're going to take a, a quick break, and when we when we come back, um, what I'm hoping that uh, uh, we can chat a little bit about, uh, Bob, is for my listeners today, all of the various topics that we're talking about today. Where where would you start? Because it it, it seems that there's so many things that you could measure. And what you're advising is that you measure the things that are most important and measure those things that can be outcomes-oriented. How do you get started if, if this is an interest? It's year-end. It's a great time to start planning for the new year. If I want to be in a better place this time next year, uh, where would I start? So that will be the big question when we come back. We'll be right back after the break. Over here, I want to just uh, have you get your pencils out. I'll wait just a second as you're uh, grabbing your pen to make sure that you can note your calendar for the remainder of the shows uh, through the end of the year and into 2013. Yes, can you hardly believe it? We're looking at our 2013 shows already. Uh, Next week, uh, right after this wonderful show with Bob Penna, next week we will be celebrating Youth in Philanthropy, another uh, AFP-winning team, uh, youth team that won this year's Youth uh, Philanthropist Award um, up in Vancouver will be with us next week uh, on uh, uh, November 27th. Again, we're here on the Nonprofit Coach um, here at 12 noon, um, and uh, those winners are the brother and sister team, Megan and Justin Churchman. Uh, after that, we will have stat- Steve Hafner here on December 4th talking about ma- matching gift uh, programs uh, here on the Nonprofit Coach. And then, of course, Kay Sprinkle Grace um, is our holiday show. Uh, she is every year, and she's back here on December 18th as our annual holiday show. We will then go on our, our annual holiday hiatus. Uh, that will take us through to January 29th. We come back in the new year uh, with Amy Eisenstein, who's going to be here on uh, January 29th, right after the holiday hiatus with Raising More with Less. So that's our uh, program notes. I hope that you've uh, got that all noted on your calendar. And, of course, during the holiday hiatus is a great time to catch up with all the podcasts that you may have missed. And we're going to head right back over to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Bob Penna. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we're back here live with uh, Bob Penna, a national outcomes expert. Uh, Bob, how do we get started? How do we make sure that we're in a better place this time next year? than we are right now? Well, two things. And, again, uh, not to be uh, too crass about it, but uh, you can start by getting my book. Let's give a, a little bit of a shout-out there because I don't think that's crass at all. I think it's a very good idea uh, for folks to, uh, uh, to get a copy of this book. Uh, the Skystone Partners Research Jury said of your book that it exemplifies the highest standards of scholarship um, and the prize originators thought of this um, as they, they sought to encourage this kind of work. We do have a link uh, in the radio links today at tedhart.com, so anyone interested in the book, they can make sure that they get that. I know it's available on Amazon 
and Barnes and Noble. So I didn't mean to jump in on your answer there, but since you brought it up, we think people should buy the book. Well, actually, I would. I'm glad you uh, you said what you said there for for a second. Um, you mentioned the AFP, uh, 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 what they wrote with the award, and they used the term scholarship. And while I, while I was very very tickled with that, I want to tell people that they shouldn't be put off by that. This book is not a scholarly tome. It is not a dry textbook. It, it, it's it's big. I'll give you that. But it's written in a very very accessible conversational uh, 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 tone. So. Please don't think that you're getting some uh, some eggheads, uh, uh, you know, uh, dry, impenetrable uh, <laughs> uh, prose here. It's not it's not that at all. So I just wanted to add that because every time somebody hears that word scholarship, a lot of uh, short hairs on the back of people's necks go up, and they think, "Oh my God, how am I going to get through this thing?" Well, yeah, and, and they may even if it's if it's not an aversion to scholarship, it's, it's I'm really busy. Um, is this going to be useful to me? Um, and I, I think this book will be uh, uh, useful to someone who's very busy but wants to make a difference and know that they're making a difference. Well, let's talk about how it's broken out then, and I think that this will answer your question as well. The first thing it begins with is what what is this outcome stuff? Uh, where, where, how does it connect to what else I know? And I tell people that they ought to think of it in terms of, uh, this outcomes movement being the third stage of management. Uh, historically, if you go back, you know, literally thousands of years, the only thing that management could do with uh, to, uh, with, with its workers, the only thing it could manage was the workers. Uh, you had lazy ones, you had industrious ones, you had strong ones, you had weak ones. The only way to get more out of them was to get them to work harder, faster, or to work more, or to add more workers. That was pretty much the only tool that was available throughout most of history up until about the Industrial Revolution. At the dawn of the Industrial Revolution, the, sh the, the focus started to change. There was a gentleman by the name of Frederick Taylor, some of your listeners may have uh, heard of. He was uh, the world's first, quote, efficiency expert. And he looked at the work, and he said, you know, there's probably ten ways to do every job. Let's look at how these jobs are being done and figure out what are the most important steps and what are the extraneous steps. And if we reduce work down to its most essential steps, we will increase productivity. It's interesting to note that the word productivity in the English language was not used in, in, in terms of labor until the late 1870s. So this is not a concept that's very, very, very old. The uh, the uh, uh, probably the highest level this was ever taken to was when Henry Ford in, invented or in, the, the concept of the of the assembly line. I mean that was Frederick Taylor's uh, efficiency, perhaps gone to a you know mind-numbing level, but that's what that was all about. What as things moved on though, um, we started to see a focus in the results of the work. And that's what management more and more started to become through the 20th century and into the 21st, a, a, ma a management of the results of that work. So that's really where this outcomes business fits in. It's, it's the third stage of management. So the book begins by telling, trying to tell people what the outcomes business is. Secondly, it talks about what are <clears throat> outcomes. Outcomes are not outputs. What's the difference? Uh, outcomes are not long-term results necessarily. What is the difference? So we try to get the language uh, uh, straight for folks. Then we talk about what is a good outcome. And I'm, I've mentioned uh, that uh, a minute ago. But here's the thing. 
there are tools out there that have been designed and created by some very, very, very smart people. The Rand Corporation did one. Uh, uh, Mark Friedman out in uh, New Mexico did one called um, uh, uh, RBA, uh, Results-Based Accountability. The Rand Corporation one is called GTO, like in the car, Getting to Outcomes. The Rensselaerville Institute did one. There are numerous of these, quite a number of these tools out there. They cost no money. You can you can learn how to use them. My book covers all of them, and basically the idea is to take them and take the frameworks that they suggest and apply that to your work. Now, as I said, a lot of these uh, 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 tools exist out there. They all do something well. Some of them do several somethings well. None of them do everything well, and that was why I developed the idea of this toolbox approach to to the book. My feeling is this. If you were going to be putting up a shelf, let's say you were putting up a shelf and I happen to be sitting there with you, and all of your tools say were craftsmen, but now you needed a level. If I gave you a Stanley level, would you refuse to use it because it wasn't craftsman? Of course not. You'd use the level. My attitude is this. These different tools, these different frameworks have various component parts. They all belong in your toolbox. You should take out and use the ones that fit for you, irrespective of their origin, irrespective of whether or not they went with the other pieces, they came in the same set as the other pieces you used before. So that is what the book does. My advice... Thinking of all of those uh, those tools, I, I don't want to interrupt you, but but thinking of, of all the various tools, and there, and there are, and I think that a lot of uh, my listeners who, you know, have been engaged in... Uh, uh, management for a while are familiar with different tools. I'm just wondering if you have any recommendations for my listeners today in terms of maybe a, a breakdown of you know sort of large organization, medium, small. If there are specific tool sets that for each of those um, size organizations you might direct them to, so they don't have to read 20 of them. Um, in, in terms of a starting place, uh, my guess is that you advise that they find something that's comfortable and workable for them, but can you direct them towards something that might be um, appropriate or at least a starting point? Well, we can. I can. If, if you won't mind, I'm going to do the opposite. I'm going to. I'm going to tell you the ones they shouldn't try to, to swallow okay. whole. They've probably most of your listeners or many of your listeners have probably heard, for example, of the balanced scorecard. Many of your listeners have probably heard of Six Sigma. Now, Six Sigma is the single most powerful outcomes management tool in the world, and most of your Fortune 500 companies use it. It's a phenomenal system. The problem with it is it requires literally its own staff. Uh, in fact, uh, for some years, uh, my wife, who works at GE, her uh, her title, her job title on her uh, on her business card was uh, black belt. That is a a rank of of um, of Six Sigma expert, expert. Similarly, with the BSC, with the Balanced Scorecard. You need a. T- it's built upon the concept of a large organization that can afford to take X number of people and devote them to do, being nothing but the BSC team. Those two, for example, as wonderful as they are, they're 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 probably too big for most nonprofits to swallow whole. So what I do in my book is I take certain aspects of them, certain tools out of the kit, so to speak, and say here are tools that you should apply to what you're doing. Don't try to swallow the whole thing, but you should use these. As for the others, uh, whether it's uh, RBA... Can I just ask a question there? Sure. So I I think that's a very interesting concept that you brought up. So it's not all or nothing. 
Right. It's not. And that's the whole point of the toolbox approach. It's not all or nothing. In other words, Ted, for example, if you were to go to, say, Lowe's, and you bought one of those uh, uh, you know, screwdriver sets, 19 screwdrivers, well, you rarely are going to take, take that home and keep it in that little plastic thing that comes in. You're going to take those screwdrivers out, and you're going to put them in your toolbox. And maybe somebody for Christmas gave you a set of wrenches. Maybe it's a different brand. You're going to take those tools out and put them in your toolbox. Next time you're putting up a shelf or a curtain rod or something, you're going to reach into that toolbox and pull out the tool that you need, irrespective of the brand or irrespective of the kit it came in. That's what I am recommending in the approach I take in this book. So there are certain pieces of GTO that I think are wonderful, and nobody else has them. So I say to folks, look, this little piece of GTO, you should always use it. This piece of the Rensselaerville Institute's model, it's very, very good. You should take these two pieces and use them. Over here, RBA, it's the only model that asks this question. You should take that question as a piece, as a tool, add it to yours, add it to what you're building, and effectively build your own. These things are not that hard. The problem is, number one, getting people comfortable with the concepts. Number two, getting them familiar with the language. And number three, getting them to try it. Um, many of your listeners, for example, have heard of the logic model. The logic model has been around for 20-some-odd years at this point. The problem is that most people don't recognize what the logic model was originally intended to do. And so they try to apply it as a be-all and end-all outcomes management system, and they more often than not run into some problems. If they were aware of these other tools, they could take these pieces of these other tools and use it with, let's say, a logic model and have a more comprehensive system and a more easily usable system that will generate results for them rather than frustration. And again, back to back to the the, the, the toolbox. So it's it's all the more reason to have this book because it isn't all or nothing, as you said. So picking the right pieces to create the the right approach for your organization may just end up saving you a lot of time. Well, that's the hope. In other words, I, time and yeah. frustration. Um, I, I'll be honest with you. One of the uh, the toughest clients that I have and that anyone else in my space has is someone who's tried this and been frustrated by it because you the people build up a very natural resistance and say, oh, my God, please don't even talk to me about that stuff. We tried it. We all went crazy. The problem was that nobody was there to guide them uh, in the use of this, and this is one of the biggest challenges I feel that the, that the nonprofit sector as a whole has right now. For example, uh, you had some weeks ago, uh, months ago at this point, you had uh, <clears throat> uh, uh, Ken Berger, uh, of Charity Navigator on your show, and Ken talks a about... a very, very popular show, very, very popular it, show. He's a very good friend and a, a hell of a nice guy on top of it all. But he talks about some statistics that your re- listeners should be aware of. There's about a trillion to a trillion and a half dollars, that's a trillion with a T, Not, you know, it's, that's a lot of money, going through the nonprofit sector in the United States every year. Now, let me give you just a suggestion of where that money goes. of that revenue goes to approximately only 1.3% of the charities. 60% of that money goes to only 0.02% of the charities. 94% of it goes to only 6% of the charities. What's happening is, I call them the big boys. They are getting 
the lion's share of the money. You could go to the Charity Navigator website. There's a link there called the Top Ten List. You can go to the Top Ten Supersized Charities. I don't want to name them now, but I suggest people go there and take a look at the, at the sheer size of some of these. Well, you know, physics tells us that the larger something is, the more mass and the more gravity. Well, it's not unlike that in the nonprofit space. The bigger boys tend to attract most of the, most of the resources. Now, add to that to that challenge for a smaller, medium-sized nonprofit the fact that this outcomes business has become the new language, or is becoming the new language of the space. What that means is, to the extent that they can or cannot speak that language, they will or will not be successful in attracting those dollars that they need. Meantime, the big boys who have a surplus of resources have already started to learn this. They're already doing it. They're already talking about results. So what that's doing is it's putting the small and medium-sized nonprofits at, a, at an even greater disadvantage. Those are, that's the market I, I, want to, I want to work with. I want to work with the small and medium-sized nonprofits to help them be able to learn this language. Now, it is true, not every nonprofit, quite frankly, should be in existence. There are those that are inefficient. There are those that are ineffective. If, if, if people go to my blog on my website, I've been writing about this for quite some time. There, there's an awful lot of money that is wasted in the nonprofit space because people give it to ineffective and inefficient nonprofits. And some are actually, yes, they're downright fraudulent. But for the vast majority that are really trying to do their best, if they can't speak this language, if they don't understand what this outcomes business is about and they're still stuck in the problem uh, stage or they're still stuck in the activity stage, they are going to be at an even greater disadvantage. And the truth of the matter is, Ted, that there is 1.6 million nonprofits in the United States. The big boys comprise a small number. This is not a pyramid. This is a, a, a stalagmite that you might see in a cave, very, very tall, very, very narrow, with a, a very high, high pinnacle. The pinnacle is where the big boys are, but the rest of them, the other 98%, those have the greatest footprint and the greatest presence in our neighborhoods and our communities, and we cannot afford to have them die on the vine. What we so, need so the, to do the, is help the them learn how to do the stuff right. for success are logically skewed towards those who are defining success. I'm sorry, I didn't hear that. Oh, well, I'm just saying the the, the um, expectations of success are naturally um, established or skewed towards those who are establishing those expectations. Well, it's it's not unlike the old uh, truism that history is written by the winners. Right, right, exactly, exactly. So, so part of your your message is, hey, these tools are there; they're being used successfully. And what are they increasingly becoming expectations? of your your investors or donors? Yes, yes, without a question. Without without doubt, they are becoming expectations. This is becoming a bar that more and more, if you were to talk to uh, nonprofits out there, particularly ones that uh, are applying for have been getting uh, government funding, and let's not forget in the United States, the government, at, when I say the government, I don't mean just the federal government, government at all levels in the United States because of what Ken Berger calls government by contract, um, government is the largest single source uh, of, 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 uh, of funding to nonprofits in the United States. And governments are increasingly under political pressure to show what's happening with the money. And they are asking for outcomes. 
they're asking for results. And uh, from that, also more and more foundations. I know, for example, that the, the, the Hewlett Foundation is very clear about wanting to be an outcomes-oriented organization. So if you're looking at uh, the Hewlett Foundation for money and many other foundations like that, they're going to be asking you for outcomes. And you can't get around it. So if organizations want to compete, um, they're going to have to be able to speak this language and speak it correctly. And that's what that's why I wrote this book. And, and for all of my listeners today that, that are feeling maybe just a little bit overwhelmed by the complexity of all this, are there one or two things that every charity should measure regardless of size or um, or the, the effort that they're engaged in? I mean, certainly there's a lot of customization, but are there baselines that you, you absolutely must be doing? Not really, because it goes from program to program. The truth of the matter is this. <clears throat> Whatever you're doing, you have, the trick is to be able to define what success would look like. I, I tell people sometimes if I'm in a room with them and their eyes are starting to glaze and they're starting to get confused, I'll say, all right, let's stop. Let's make believe it's one year from now. You've been incredibly successful with this one particular program. Tell me what's different. You let your imagination roll wild. What is different? What has changed? And when you put it in that perspective, people then start to get it because you're asking them to be to use their imaginations, for example. Tell me what is different. Tell me why things are better. Okay, from that, those now you have a hint at what your outcomes ought to be. Now you've told me really what it is you hope to achieve. Let's start there, and let's work backwards to how we get there. So if, if there's one thing that I would, I would, I would say to all nonprofits who are listening. If you're confused about this outcomes business and where to where to begin, <clears throat> step one, of course, yes, buy my book. But step two, start by thinking about what success would look like. Now, again, we can't get into nirvana. We're not going to change the world. We're not going to solve every single problem. Start with one program. Be realistic. If it's one year from now and you were wildly successful, what would that success look like? Then take that definition and pull out the key characteristics of what has changed. Now you're starting to talk about outcomes. You're starting to define your outcomes. And then it's a matter of working backwards to figure out, okay, what do we need to do to get there? And that's usually what I help organizations do in my private practice. Well, that sounds like a, a great way to get started. Uh, amazing how fast time goes when uh, you've got someone as, as smart uh, and uh, as interesting as yourself. Uh, before the, uh, we end the show here, uh, can you make sure that my listeners know how they can reach you? Uh, well, they can go to my website, which is uh, www.outcomestoolbox.com. Uh, they can email me at drbob at outcomestoolbox.com. Outcomes Toolbox being all one word. And don't forget the S. It's, it's outcomes with plural. That's terrific. Uh, Dr. Bob, thank you so much for uh, joining us here on the Nonprofit Coach. This has been uh, really uh, not only fascinating, but such an important topic uh, for all of our listeners. I do want to remind uh, everybody uh, that we will be back here next week with our National Philanthropy Day show uh, celebrating youth in philanthropy. That is the Nonprofit Coach radio show uh, for today. Uh, Dr. Bob has been here as our guest. We'll uh, catch you here live on The Nonprofit Coach next week. Thank you, Bob. Thank you very much. You've been listening to The Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. 
Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.